dropping on my face. He's the man, he's the man, watch that. He's the man, he's the man, watch that. He's the man, he's the man, watch that. Hey, you're listening to the Matt Watch That Podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, the Emmys took place last Monday, and, uh, what a show. Am I right? Who watched it? Crickets. But the show got me thinking about people who have been nominated and never won, and some of the answers might surprise you. For example, Kaylee Kuko, who's been nominated twice for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series for The Flight Attendant. Never for The Big Bang Theory. And that was on for like 27 unfunny seasons. Sandra Oh has been nominated 10 times, 5 times for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for Grey's Anatomy, 4 times for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series for Killing Eve, and 1 time for Outstanding Guest Actress in a Comedy Series for Hosting Saturday Night Live. No wins. Hugh Laurie's a surprise to me because I think he's great in everything. He's been nominated eight times, six outstanding lead actors in a drama series for House MD, one time outstanding supporting actor in a limited series or movie for The Night Manager, and one time for outstanding guest actor in a comedy series for Veep. Connie Britton has been nominated five times, two for outstanding lead actress in a drama series for The Brilliant Friday Night Lights, one time for outstanding lead actress in a miniseries or movie for American Horror Story, one time for outstanding lead actress in a drama series for Nashville, and one time for outstanding supporting actress in a limited or anthology series or movie for The White Lotus. She was also on Spin City for four years, 100 episodes, but no nominations. Lauren Graham, never been nominated. And she's been around. Seven seasons on the Gilmore Girls, five seasons on Parenthood, Zippo. On the other side of the spectrum, you have Angela Lansbury, who's been nominated for 18 Primetime Emmy Awards. 12 times for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series for Murder, She Wrote. One time for Outstanding Lead Performance in a Variety or Musical Program for Sweeney Todd. One time for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Limited Series or a Special for Little Gloria, Happy at Last. One time for Outstanding Guest Actress in a Drama Series for Law & Order. One time for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Miniseries or a Movie for The Blackwater Lightship and two times for Outstanding Individual Performance in a Variety or Music program for the 41st and 43rd Tony Awards. She did get an Honorary Hall of Fame Emmy, but who counts those? It's like colleges who give that honorary doctorate to an actor who dropped out in sophomore year. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It. Two stars Watch at Your Own Risk. Three stars Standard Fare. Four stars worth checking out, and five stars must see. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie St. Elmo's Fire from 1985. 
So how'd I miss it? Well, I think I've admitted this before, but I wasn't a really big fan of all things 80s. Outside of the movies that I watched in my childhood, The Goonies, Back to the Future, things like that, I didn't get into the 80s until a little later in life. When I started listening to Nine Inch Nails, that's when I gained an appreciation for synthesizers and programming. Then I kind of went back and thought, oh yeah, you know what, the 80s were pretty cool. And in turn, I started watching more movies from the 80s and realized, oh yeah, this was definitely a fun decade. But this movie in particular had the disadvantage of having a really bad theme song. Now, I admit it's catchy now, I can listen to it, but back then, I just didn't like it at all. So that made me avoid this movie the way that My Heart Will Go On made me avoid Titanic for 10 years. It was directed by Joel Schumacher, who helmed The Lost Boys, which is getting a remake, Cousins, Flatliners, and Batman Forever. My favorite movie of his was The Client. It was a great adaptation of the John Grisham book, one that I actually read. The screenplay was co-written by Joel Schumacher and Carl Kurlander, who scribed episodes of Saved by the Bell, The New Class, Hangtime, and Malibu, California. This is something to look out for. If you ever have the chance to go to Universal Studios Hollywood, you can stop by the St. Elmo's Bar, or at least the facade, which is close to the Back to the Future clock tower. So four months after graduating from Georgetown University, a group of friends experienced the highs and lows of the real world. One night, they're brought back together when their friends get into a car accident, winding up in the hospital. Wendy Beamish's vehicle is totaled when Billy Hicks drove it under the influence. Despite a bandage on her head, she says she's fine. She's a social worker who enables Billy by giving him money when he's down on his luck. She's not the only one. Billy gets bailed out by their friend Jules Van Patten. He gets a suspended license and charged with drunk driving. He's reluctantly married and has a newborn child. And he just lost his job. He still acts like every night is a frat party and plays the sax in a band. After a trip to the police station, they arrive at St. Elmo's Bar. Not exactly the best place to go when your friend has just been arrested for drunk driving, but it gives you a sense of who these people are. We meet the gang. Alec Newberry is a Democrat who works for Congressman Langston and has political ambitions. On the weekend, he's working on the campaign of Senator Hodges, even though he's a Republican, only because it pays more. He's just moved in with his girlfriend, Leslie Hunter, and everyone assumes they'll get married. He's been pushing to get engaged, not only because of the image it would project, but he assumes it will force him to be faithful to her. Kirby Keeger is a waiter at the bar who's studying to be a lawyer. He has a borderline obsession with a woman named Dale Bieberman, who was a nurse at the hospital that they had left, but also a former college classmate. That's basically his whole narrative. He's roommates with Kevin Dolans, who is a walking cloud of cynicism. In junior high, he played bongos in a band and fell in love with the lead singer. One night, he got drunk and pledged his love for her, and she ran off with a bassist named Ringo. Since then, he's been a lovelorn soul. He's a writer for the Washington Post, but for the obituaries. He has a desire to write about something more significant and searches for the meaning of life. Then there's Jules, Juliana Van Patten, who got recruited out of school into international banking. She appears well off and has a high-class sensibility, but she's in debt. She's taken two months advance of her salary and buys everything on credit. Even though she's inherited money from her stepmom, she was marked as next of kin and has to pay for her funeral. Her father is in South Africa with his new younger wife, so it's her responsibility. Ultimately, events in their lives start to put fractures in the foundations, and they start to grow apart, but in the end will their underlying friendship prevail. Here's a quote without context. 
Do not give that man a blowtorch. I'm conflicted by St. Elmo's Fire. The cast is charming. This is at the height of the Brat Pack popularity. When they're all hanging out together, it works. They have chemistry, it gels. It feels completely authentic. But when they start to get serious, it feels too elevated for them. I don't know if the drama is forced, but it doesn't always work. Plus, none of the characters are too sympathetic. I mean, let's be honest. When you're in your 20s, you're not the most sympathetic people. It's very much the decade of me. You're still trying to find yourself, you're going into the real world for the first time. It's not until you're in your 30s when your dreams start to die that you check yourself a little more. Reality comes knocking at your door. So while I enjoy watching everyone together, I don't necessarily enjoy watching the movie. And the storyline is a little uneven, like there wasn't one narrative flowing through the movie. It was these separate storylines that were just linked together because they were friends. So that's why instead of doing a real summary, I just summarized each of their lives. But as I said, the cast is really good. Andy McDowell plays Dale Bieberman. Blake Clark plays Wally, the owner of St. Elmo's Bar. I know him best from Home Improvement, the owner of Harry's Hardware. Good character actor, got that gruff voice. And Mr. and Mrs. Beamish, Wendy's parents, are played by Martin Balsam and Joyce Van Patten, who were actually married from 1957 to 1962. Now for a little trivial trivia. Well, I guess I just gave it. Now for a little more trivial trivia. The theme song was originally written for Rick Hansen, a three-time gold medalist at the Paralympic Games, who was on a promotional tour called Man in Motion to raise awareness for spinal cord injuries. The cinematography was captured by Stephen H. Burham, whose filmography includes The Outsiders, The Untouchables, Casualties of War, Mission Impossible, and Snake Eyes. He was nominated for a Best Cinematography Oscar for Hoffa, and won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Individual Achievement, Creative Technical Crafts for Cosmos. It was edited by Richard Marks, who worked on Pretty in Pink, Dick Tracy, Father of the Bride, and was nominated for four Academy Awards for Best Film Editing, for Apocalypse Now, Terms of Endearment, Broadcast News, and As Good As It Gets. The score was composed by David Foster, who wrote the music for The Secret of My Success, Stealing Home and Listen to Me. He has 16 Grammy Awards under his belt, co-writing for such artists as Michael Buble, Natalie Cole, Barbara Streisand, Seal, Earth, Wind & Fire, Chaka Khan, Olivia Newton-John, Mariah Carey, Air Supply, Chicago, and Madonna. His most famous compositions being You're My Inspiration and Grown Up Christmas List. He was nominated for three Academy Awards for Best Original Song, Glory of Love by Peter Cetera for The Karate Kid Part 2, I Have Nothing by Whitney Houston for The Bodyguard, and The Prayer by Celine Dion and Andrea Bocelli from Quest for Camelot. The soundtrack features songs by Aretha Franklin, Billy Squire, Tom Smallwood, John Anderson of Yes, and the theme song St. Elmo's Fire, Man in Motion, co-written and performed by John Parr. It's a little dated now, as many of the songs and scores from the 80s are. They don't seem to hold up like good orchestral music. The runtime is 1 hour 48 minutes. It had a budget of 10 million and grossed 38 million at the box office. I give it 3 out of 5 stars. Add half a star if you grew up in the 80s. It's right down your alley. If you've seen St. Elmo's Fire and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along. Each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. 
In the mid-90s, country music was crossing over to the mainstream. Garth Brooks had led the pack, but Shania Twain blew the doors off. She caused controversy by showing off her midriff in music videos, and were called snowflakes. Her popularity opened the doors for Faith Hill, Martina McBride, and this week's featured artist, the Dixie Chicks, or as they're known now, the Chicks. They were formed by sisters Emily and Marty Irwin, alongside Laura Lynch and Robin Lynn Macy. They originally performed traditional country and bluegrass music, and released three albums to moderate fanfare, but it wasn't until the sisters teamed up with Natalie Maines that they found their voice and worldwide success. That's where I came in as a fan. The combination of their harmonies and catchy tunes were too much for me to deny. Their debut album, Wide Open Spaces, has one of my favorite songs of theirs, You Were Mine, which was the only song written by the sisters. On their second album, Fly, the chicks had some more creative control and truly found their niche, with earworms ready to run and Some Days You Gotta Dance, ballads Cowboy Take Me Away and Cold Day in July, and fun quirky songs like Sin Wagon and Goodbye Earl. They continued to have success with their third album, Home, released in 2002, until a year later, when they were performing in England and voiced their displeasure over the war in Iraq and of President George W. Bush. They continued to make incredible music, but their popularity waned, and they eventually went on hiatus, whether that was intended or they were early victims of cancellation. They continued to perform, but didn't release another album until 2020's Gaslighter. The Chicks were back in form. The song Sleep at Night could be their most raw and emotional, based on the divorce of Natalie Maines. I've seen the Chicks in concert three times, and it's an amazing show, beginning to end. I think they're underrated as musicians and songwriters, their harmonies are just as good as the Beach Boys, and their shows always have a great theme. I'm glad they're finally getting the recognition and appreciation from the industry that turned their backs on them all those years ago. So I've picked a couple of songs to feature, and they'll be available in the Matt Watch That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Archer, created by Adam Reed, who is responsible for Frisky Dingo on Adult Swim. The series revolves around Sterling Archer, an egotistical spy, and his colleagues at the International Secret Intelligence Service, aka ISIS. Yes, the acronym was changed after a certain group started causing a bit of havoc. The agency is run by his mother Mallory Archer, and includes his on-again, off-again love interest, field agent Lana Kane, secretary Cheryl Tunt, head of research Dr. Krieger, comptroller Cyril Figgis, engineer Ray Gillette, and HR director Pam Poovey. It features the voices of H. John Benjamin, Judy Greer, Amber Nash, Chris Parnell, Aisha Tyler, Lucky Yates, and the late Jessica Walter. The animation is done by Floyd County Productions in Atlanta, Georgia. I have to say, this is one of the highlights of the series. I've always loved animation. It doesn't really matter the style. Sure, anime gets a little weird with the big eyes, but I've never seen animation done the way they do it. It's almost photorealistic, and they just traced over it and made it animated. And what's also unique is that they use thicker lines than they do in animation now. It's really pretty brilliant. I'm never going to be able to do it justice if you don't see it, so just watch it. There are running gags and callbacks. It's a genuine laugh-out-loud show. When it moved to FXX, I lost track of it, so even I have plenty of episodes to catch up on. 
Archer has been on for 13 seasons, 127 episodes, from 2009 to present. It's won three Primetime Emmy Awards. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSaroski.com for the latest news and updates. And come back next time for the reviews, rants, and randomness. She caused controversy in... She caused controversy in some circles because she showed off her midrip in mu- midrip. I'm a trip. The Matt Watch That podcast is off next week, but if you need a fix, follow the Matt Forgot That podcast, which will be all new.